0: Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. Today it's just me. I don't have anything prepared today because I'm really busy with work and other things, but I thought I would just flip through some of the magazines that I get regarding psychotherapy and psychology and just uh, offer my opinion. I've done episodes like this before and people seem to like them, so here we go. So let me uh, just take a second here and read the first article here. I'm I'm reading Psychotherapy Networker, Psychotherapy in the Media Spotlight. Well, the, the first thing that the author talks about here is Kathleen Smith. She says that it's no secret that psychotherapy has had an image problem in the media. Real and fictional clinicians on TV and in the movies are regularly portrayed as jargon-spouting caricatures or are often shown to break ethical codes without blinking, displaying more personal problems than their clients. So yeah, I would say that this is true often when clinicians, therapists are portrayed in movies or in novels or TV shows or the internet, cable TV particularly yeah i i just do a head slap and say oh my god if this is how people are being taught about our profession i you know, it's, it's no wonder everyone hates us <laughs> I think the problem, I mean, if I was just to speculate, I would say that one, our profession doesn't translate very well into entertainment. If you were just to watch a typical therapy session from the outside, it's not very exciting. It's not very sexy. There's no explosions. There's no major revelations. It's a lot of talking back and forth. And what's happening in the room, in my experience, can be quite energizing and interesting and fascinating and moving and emotional, but it doesn't translate well into something that you can watch. Whereas being a medical doctor, for instance, you can have a show about the ER and you can, you know, highlight certain rare moments in an ER and you can make a TV show out of it. Whereas highlighting rare moments in therapy doesn't translate very well. So I think one of the, that's, that's one problem. So, but people are interested in therapy, but in order to make it interesting enough for TV and, and movies, you have to you know sex it up a bit. You have to have the therapist attracted to his or her client. You have to have the therapist having sex with his or her clients. You have to have the therapist breaking the rules and meeting the client for a rendezvous or something like this. So I think that's that's one thing. The other thing is is I've found that there are. Some people who like to tear down our profession, and for whatever reason, they feel threatened or they've had a bad experience, which is definitely possible. And they want to tear down our profession, and they get titillated by seeing these negative portrayals of clinicians in movies and TV. It, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but I think, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, a lot of the depictions of therapists were really not very flattering. You know, a therapist would be portrayed as these sort of know-it-alls that have too many problems themselves or out of touch. Choose whatever stereotype you have about therapists. And and these TV and movie depictions would really play that up. And I, I think it, it, it pleases audiences when you give the audience a chance to really hate a group that they want to hate. And I think that that was part of it. Another part of the, if I was to speculate, reason as to why this is, is that therapists, I think, have been dismal when it comes to putting themselves out there. Just take a second to think about the psychotherapists that the public knows about not yourself if you're a clinician I mean you know about you know hundreds of different famous therapists but just think about the average you know Joe Plummer kind of person when when you say name a therapist to that person what would they say name a famous therapist you know who would they identify I I'm thinking Dr Phil would really be the only person that they would think of and he's not even a therapist anymore he hasn't been a therapist for I don't know 20 years or something and what he does on TV could be mistaken for therapy but it's a TV show. It's, it's entertainment. It's, it's in front of an audience. It's, it's not therapy. So I wish that we had people that were wiser, that were, I don't know, just seemingly more easily respected. To some extent, I blame our industry for not putting forward someone that we want to put forward, but I don't know how exactly we'd do that. Okay, let me get back to this magazine see if there's any other things that trigger any rants. Okay, so I read a little bit of the rest of this article, and it caused me to daydream a little bit, and I started thinking about something that happened to me last quarter as a professor, and I thought I'd just mention it. I had a student that came up to me. Well, so backing up a little bit, I I was teaching an applied family therapy class, and in the class I reviewed different theoretical orientations, solution-focused, general family systems, cognitive behavioral... Humanistic experiential theories, and also psychodynamic family therapy theories. And uh, after I presented on the psychodynamic family therapy theory, a couple of students, a number of students came up to me and said that they were surprised that they actually liked it. And this is not the first time that I've heard that. I think for for some good reasons, Freudian theory has been beat up on, has been bashed. In, in some justifiable ways, but psychodynamic theory is really quite vast and there are parts of it that are definitely bashable and definitely uh, not very useful and, and perhaps even offensive. But there are other parts of psychodynamic theory that are really useful that are not found in other theories. Also, it's such a vast, ever-changing, ever-branching-out theory that you can't even really say what psychodynamic theory is. The version that, that I teach is one that I think is, is appealing to today's students and trainees. And I get this response often. They often say, wow, I, I thought I would hate it, but you know, I actually think it might be my number one choice at this point. One student even said that she had been traumatized to some extent by this theory, that this theory had been used against her. It had been used as a tool of abuse against her her trauma was being triggered as the date approached on the syllabus that I would start talking about psychodynamic theory. And she was worried justifiably. I didn't know about this. I wish I had because I could have talked with her about it beforehand. But she told me after she said, I was really quite worried and anxious about your lecture on psychodynamic theory. But afterwards, I was very relieved that it didn't It didn't hurt at all to hear it. In fact, I heard a completely different version of psychodynamic theory than than the one that was in my head and the one that was presented to me. Having said that, I just want to go on the record and say that I'm not solely a psychodynamic therapist. I'm an integrated therapist, and I, I believe that all the theories are useful, even reality therapy, as I often say. Uh, I, I'm a huge believer in cognitive behavioral. I'm a huge believer in family systems, the general family system, structural family therapy, strategic, these kinds of things, humanistic theories. Uh, there are many underneath the umbrella of humanistic psychology. And I would say that, uh, I'm in love with all of them as well. I mean, they certainly have problems. Each, each theory has its problems, but, I find them to be inspirational, useful, particularly for clients. That's why I use them, and uh, so I just wanted to go on the record and say that. Okay, so here's a bit in the it's called same same magazine, Psychotherapy Networker, and someone's asking about how to use journaling in their practice, and Susan replies with a lot of different ideas here. She says that there's no rule to journaling when you give it as an assignment to clients. There are many different directives you can use with journaling as as an assignment. The the most general one is, hey, just journal when you want to, whenever it it strikes your fancy. Just just write down your thoughts and know that it's just between you and yourself, and you don't have to to share it with anybody. Uh, But there's other ways of doing it, like uh, in this article she talks about sentence completion, so you can provide like a workbook uh, that that has the beginnings of sentences, and then the person finishes them. Like the last time I was depressed, I dot dot dot, um, and then they finish finish that, and and they can write as much as they want in response to that prompt. Uh, other things you can ask people to do is to make lists, or you can ask people to write down what they're grateful for, what they what they're thankful for. These kinds of things. Uh, I'll say for myself. I don't often assign journaling to my clients, mostly because I find that clients either gravitate towards journaling or they don't, and they don't need me necessarily to tell them to do that. I might throw it out there as like a, hey, you know, you could always journal and, and see if it sticks. But but you're either a journaler or you're not. In In my experience, there are people that say they would like to keep a journal, but they don't because for whatever reason, it's just not interesting enough for them to do or they're just not motivated and then there are some people that journal every day and love it so i find that there are two different kinds of people in that way. But for the people that do journal, I, I have found that it is quite useful. I can think of a number of clients that, that journaled. One would journal and put it in a lockbox under her bed because she didn't want people to read it. And this was, uh, she used her journal a lot during a time when she felt that people were not listening to her. People, She felt that She couldn't tell anybody else besides me what was really going on, and it was an opportunity for her in between sessions to really just check in with herself because she wasn't used to even thinking about herself. She was used to always giving and taking care of other people and thinking about others, and when she journaled it, it sort of forced her to think about herself, and in therapy, I would... Provide the space for her to think about herself but that was just one hour a week and really in between the sessions that time uh, reflecting upon herself she had a hard time even remembering to do it and so journaling gave her that opportunity Uh, I can think of other clients that use journaling to process difficult stories from their past they would write about how this or that happened in their childhood and it gave them an opportunity again in between sessions to process things. It can, I think it can accelerate therapy and I'm sure there's research demonstrating that. I'm just I'm, I'm taking a guess anyway. And I've also used it as a way for clients to enhance the therapy session. So they'll journal outside of the session and then they'll bring it in to the session. And what I find is that the things that they write down in, in a journal are often much more um, vulnerable. Or can be more vulnerable than the things that they might say when they're in the office, you know. Because when they're alone, they are in a different space; they feel freer to say whatever they want to. So that's another use for journaling. It's an interesting article there. Let's see what else is in this magazine. Okay, I came across something that I would like to comment on. The next article here in the Psychotherapy Networker is authored by Ron Tafel and it's called The Rise of the Two-Dimensional Parent, Our Therapist Seeing a New Kind of Attachment. And it has a picture of a father holding his baby and he's texting at the same time or something. And, and <laughs> whenever I see this stuff, I just think, okay, what are we getting into? And he, he starts off by saying there's some research saying that people are less happy than they were a couple decades before and how people have more mental illnesses now. And right away I'm thinking, well, it, it could be. Is it is it that we're less happy now or is our definition of happiness less? And in terms of mental illnesses increasing is is that because we're, as a population in the United States, becoming actually more mentally ill, or are our detection systems becoming better at detecting mental illness? Have our efforts in terms of raising awareness about mental illness helped people to identify themselves as having a mental illness? So, so there's just a lot of questions. I, I don't refute the idea that our society might be seeing a trend, but it's just hard to study that sort of thing over time. Okay, just reading further into this article by Ron Taffel, I can get to something that I can definitely agree with. He talks about the... Again, not he, he's not identifying any research, but he's saying in in the past several decades, therapists have been seeing growing numbers of kids across the economic spectrum who were out of control. So in other words, he it seems as though children are not obeying their parents as much as they used to again this is a very old person thing to say about the younger generations but you know there might be some legitimacy to to that idea I don't know if it's true though I mean when I think about my own anecdotal evidence which again is just anecdotal I don't know if it's true I the of the youth that I see today are they any more defiant than they were 20 years ago I, I would say no not in my experience but I think that uh, he gets to some points that, that I think are something to keep in mind, which is that in the past, you would live in a neighborhood for a long time. You would know your neighbors perhaps a little better. You would go to the same church every Sunday, and you would know all the people at the church. Your extended family would likely live closer to you than people do you know now. Because when you moved out of your parents' house, you would just move down the street. You wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to move to a completely another city. I mean, certainly people have done that forever. But I think uh, now people have a much more mobile sensibility you know, in terms of in the way that the job market is and this kind of, sort of thing. But, but anyway, so 30 years ago as opposed to now, you have children that would grow up with a community of people that knew that child – and uh, with a community that knew the parents and could support them and all that sort of thing. Whereas today, people are much more fragmented. They might not know their neighbors. They might not go to church. They might be working a lot. Certainly there are children today that have support networks, but but maybe less so than than before. And then he goes on to talk about, well, well, what is, what's increased? Well, what's increased is tech, technology, right? And so you have children today with cell phones and iPads and computers and this sort of thing, which doesn't necessarily enhance the parental authority. You know, when, when say, a child were to talk back to their parents 30 years ago at church, well, certainly all the other parents and, and that community would support the parents, quote-unquote, against the child, Whereas now, without that, you just have perhaps a single parent often trying to establish authority over a child. And then the child has the Internet to go to (laughs) and and the Internet isn't certainly going to support the mother in that moment. And so the 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 parent single parent is is alone in his or her effort to establish authority. And so so I think that 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 is a valid point to make here and and something that we should definitely think about as a society i I don't know how to fix that honestly but i i often think about with my clients how they are connected to the people around them i think that it's something that us americans in particular are are really poor at emphasizing we like to think of ourselves as very independent we don't like to be a part of any particular group and i think that there's some pros and cons to that point of view and one of the cons is that it, it leaves us quite isolated And there are a lot of benefits by being a part of a group. There are a lot of disadvantages of being a part of a group. Like a lot of people don't like to be a part of a group that, that feels like a cult, you know, that feels like you have to be, you have to think like them and act like them. You know, Americans don't tend to like that sort of pressure, but, uh, and that's a price you pay to some extent, uh, for getting the support that is so helpful when you're in a group of people. But anyway, Another little rant there. Let's see what else they have to say here. Then Ron Taffel goes on to talking about maybe his main point, which is that technology has—I'm guessing specifically cell phones and social networking and Twitter and this sort of thing—that that even when parents were physically there for their children to parent them that they weren't actually genuinely there to parent their children because they were distracted by their cell phones or other such devices and I would say that that that's definitely true I don't know if it's going to have any kind of huge effect on parenting and I think that a lot of people are being a little paranoid about it I mean I I know a lot of parents and have observed a lot of parents that absolutely know when to put their phone down so I don't think it's this huge uh, problem. I think we definitely need to be talking about it now. I have encountered some people that are addicted to their phones, but I wouldn't say that that's the majority of people. And you'll hear people talk about how they need to, you know, go off the grid for a while because you know they're they're going crazy. They're they're checking their phone every every thirty seconds to see if they get a tweet or to see if their Facebook gets a like or something. You know, they they're they're obsessed. And what I often hear people talking about is they equate that behavior with everyone that ever checks their phone. So if you check your phone, then that indicates that you have an addiction to your phone, which is not true. It's like saying you had a glass of wine and you're an alcoholic. No, it's it's not true. If you drank a glass of wine every five minutes every day of the week, then yes, you have a problem with alcohol in all likelihood. But If you just check your phone every now and then, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a quote unquote problem. But for many people, they will report that they feel as though they have a compulsion toward uh, social networking because it it involves the same kind of neural pathways that gambling does or sex does. If, If you are in this sort of world, then you'll understand it. If you're not, you won't. But if you tweet, I don't. I don't use Twitter. I have, we have a Twitter account on psychology in Seattle. If you want to visit us, I-, I don't feel like I talk about it enough and like no one's following us, but if you care to do that, that'd be, that'd be great. But honestly, I don't use it very often, but I, I know people that do. And, and when they post something and they're posting stuff all the time, and they get some kind of feedback from people, it's, it's a rush to them. Someone will favorite their tweet, or someone will retweet, oh my God, I have 10 retweets, or I have 1,000 retweets. It's an elation. It's a feeling of accomplishment. It's a feeling of getting some kind of 15 minutes of fame. And it's quite powerful in the brain. And so you'll find that when people get in that, they, they get quite compulsive about their, about their phone use. Not to say that if you had an experience like that, like say you were releasing a, a, an album, like you're in a band and you're releasing an album and for a few days you're obsessed with checking your statistics. We wouldn't necessarily call that a problem because it's a short term issue and, and you're, you're very interested in it. It'd, it'd be like, you know, you're running for office and you, you're checking the polls because you're, you're very interested to see how that's going. So, you know, it's a complex issue. It's, it's not like checking your phone every five minutes is a bad thing necessarily. I would say that in general, for most people, if they were checking their phone every five minutes for a number of months, in all likelihood, they would say that it's not a good idea and it's not helping them. It's, it's, it's become more of a compulsion rather than something that's enjoyable to them. And it's interfering with their work and with their relationships with people. So certainly in this article, he's talking about how for some parents, they might be too focused on their phones and not enough on their children, even though their children are there. And I think that that, you know, it's it's a valid thing to bring up. It's hard to say what's going to happen with, with this, but... um but, but it is an interesting point. It, it is something that happened rather recently. I mean, in, in 20 years, they're going to laugh at us the way we talk about it now. But, but I have to say, like, in the last two or three years, I, I see people suddenly much more on their phones than, than before. For instance, I live near this hotel. And on my way to work, I'll often walk by the workers that go into the back and smoke. And so there's these guys that work there and they've been working there since I've lived here. And so when I first moved into this place in in 2010 and I would walk to work, they would all be standing there smoking and we'd have conversations and I would say hi and, and I'd walk to work. And, and so every day I would see these guys. Well, something happened, I think maybe two years ago, and all of them got cell phones. Presumably they always, they always had cell phones. But something happened where... Smartphones became appealing to almost everybody, and these guys were now always on their smartphones. So I would walk by them, and they wouldn't even look up to say hi to me. I mean, not that I was hurt by it necessarily, but it was just an interesting change from probably 2011 to 2012. It was probably in that, or maybe 2012. Twenty is around 2012. Was the the time when it made the switch between none of them were on their smartphones, and I would always say hi to. All of them were on their smartphones and they would never look up or rarely would they look up. The same thing with I'm in a zone where there's lots of construction and I see a lot of police officers that are standing around guarding something or, yeah, I don't know, directing traffic. And they'll just be staring at their phones. Oh, the police officer at the grocery store I go to again. Normally he'd just be standing there, bored out of his mind i'm guessing, just standing there waiting for a crime to happen, but now he's completely into his smartphone he's just he's just standing there, the police officer is just standing there and just staring at his cell phone, presumably reading something and the, you know it's a definite shift now for the old and stodgy, they will rail on that and say you know it's this our society's going down the tubes, and everyone's just attached to their phones and you know, it's the end of society as we know it, and perhaps it is. But again, if you read history enough, you'll you'll hear these these people say these things all the time. So I'm not going to get too worried about it because our society tends to adjust. But it is an interesting thing. You know, how many children are being harmed by a parent who doesn't know that line between giving their children enough attention and staring at their smartphone you know there there is it's an interesting question and and how many therapists bring it up with with you know there are a lot of therapists that specialize in parenting and and i wonder how many talk with the parents about their smartphone use when they're with their child it's an interesting question um and again from my anecdotal experience of the parents that i know they know that line and They would never neglect their child. You know, the the compulsion for a parent to care for a child is quite strong. Parents don't have to necessarily drum up the motivation to, to care for their children. You know, for instance, you have a father and he's with his child at the park and he has a cell phone in his pocket and he gets a you know a notification of some of some sort and he picks up his phone and he's looking at his phone well he's at his crossroads at that point he can he can either get totally engrossed in his phone and forget that he's even at the park with his child or he can put his phone back in his pocket and continue to watch his child and interact with his child well in my experience the compulsion to interact with a child is much stronger than the compulsion to look at your phone i mean your phone is great but it's not that great. A child is really great. So the, the the compulsion to for for most parents to pay attention to one's children is is a quite strong force that that even a smartphone can't get in the way of. Now, having said that, are there individual parents that are having problems with that? I would I would assume so. All right. Well, I've ranted enough. Uh, I'm sure I said a, a number of unscientific things that people can write me and say. You just said an unscientific thing. Actually, if if you wanted to criticize me and you said I said an unscientific thing, that would be one of the nicest emails I'd ever received. Usually the negative emails are something like, you're dumb. You don't know what you're talking about. I remember one guy was like, read a fucking book or something. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll, I'll I guess I'll read a book. But having said that, I want to say that someone emailed me and said, something like they, they seem to have a lot of sympathy for me in terms of the negative emails that I get and the negative comments I get on YouTube. I don't want to paint a picture as if I get 99 negative responses and one positive that, that is maybe that's the impression this certainly it seemed like that was the impression I was giving to this one individual listener. I, d- I don't want it to seem that way. It's, it's probably much more the reverse, but, but sometimes the negative emails can be quite harsh Um, and with everything in life, you remember the negative things much more easily than you remember the positive things. So it's more of a manifestation of that, but anyway, all right, well, that does it for another episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself.